Welcome to The Classical Corner, a new podcast brought to you by myself, Davina Clark, where I will delve into the secrets behind classical music and take you on a journey through some of the most inspired and beautiful works ever written. Throughout this series, I shall be joined by a selection of remarkable and talented musicians. Not only will we discuss our love for music, but I shall also discover the thoughts and processes behind my illustrious guests and what makes them the top of their game in the classical music field. So, come and join me in the Classical Corner. Baritone Benjamin Apple is celebrated by audiences and critics alike for his infinite range of vocal colours and for a voice that belongs to the last of the old great masters of song. As a former Gramophone Award Young Artist of the Year in 2016, Benjamin went on to become a BBC New Generation artist, a Wigmore Hall emerging artist, and also an Echo Rising Star. As an established recitalist, he has performed around the globe at the world's most prestigious festivals and in venues such as Amsterdam's Concertgebouw, the Elbe Philharmonie, Musée de Louvre and the Wigmore Hall. He is also in equal demand as a soloist with NHK Symphony Orchestra, the Philharmonia, Philadelphia Orchestra, Seattle Symphony and Vienna Symphony. In 2016, he signed exclusively to Sony Classical and has just begun an exciting multi-album collaboration with Alpha Classics. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome him to the Classical Corner today. Hello, Benjamin, and thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really delighted to have you here in the Classical Corner with me. It's wonderful uh, talking to you. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, before we get started on some more musical discussions, I thought our listeners might like to know a little bit about you and also perhaps how your musical journey and indeed career started. Well, then let's let's start. <laughs> um, so um, I'm obviously German. So um, I was born in a beautiful little town in Regensburg in Bavaria, where I then joined later the boys choir. And after my A-level, I wasn't sure if I should become really a singer. I somehow really was frightened of a life out of a suitcase and traveling around. It was really something I could not imagine exactly what I'm having right now. So um, <laughs> after, after school, I decided to do an apprenticeship in a bank. I didn't know anything about banking. Even the day before I started uh, the work, I had to ask my oldest brother how to even withdraw money from, from the cash machine. And uh, <laughs> after a while, I actually enjoyed it, kind of enjoyed it. Um, so I made the decision to study business. And after two years of studying business, somehow I was missing something. Really, it was, you know, this big lecture hall where 500 students were sitting and one professor just talks and then you have to write something down and out of your script to learn for an exam. But you really don't spend time on yourself and improve yourself or reflect or work on your, inner, on your skills soft skills. And mm. therefore, I was drawn again to start studying singing. And it was a parallel process. And over the years, really, I was more and more drawn towards the singing. And then I decided to come to London in 2010 to study a master in at the Guildhall School in London. And uh, this was probably the moment, although I was still thinking to write a PhD in business, but this was probably the moment where I made up my mind uh, becoming a singer. And uh, since then, I 
lucky enough to perform. Um, I love performing. I love my life. I love even the life out of a suitcase and staying in hotels. Um, so, so that's where we are right now. Fantastic. What a story. And did you have a musical upbringing as a child at all? I come from a musical background. So my mother uh, conducts a few choirs and she plays a guitar. My two oldest brother also went to the boys choir before me. So there was a lot of singing and music making around, but obviously no one was a profession, professional musician. I'm the first one in the entire family. Um, but yes, I think that was probably really where the love for music was planted by mainly my mother. Fantastic. That sounds lovely. I also don't come from, uh, well, I come from a musical family, but nobody's actually a musician. Um, so it just goes to show you just need sort of support and love and encouragement around you. And Absolutely. then you are able to go and sort of pursue your dreams, really. And also in the right way, you know, it's nice having supportive parents, even when, you know, in the first few years, you realize that they're sometimes a bit frightened <laughs> that someone who still gets amazing uh, job offers from a bank, uh, denies them, uh, declines them and and just carries on making music. It's it's I think for parents, it's not so easy to understand. But nevertheless, even if you feel behind uh, that, there's there are these worries that generally they just support you and, and are really kind to you and and let you uh, also in a not non pushy way um, find your own way. I completely agree. You're absolutely right. So you are a baritone. And for our listeners out there uh, who might have only heard of a tenor or a bass, perhaps you can explain actually what a baritone actually is and how that affects maybe the repertoire that you sing, whether there's specific baritone repertoire out there or whether you're adapting music already written for bass or tenor. Well, I st I'm still not sure what baritone is, no. Um, <laughs> I, well, baritone is uh, the male voice between high tenor and the low bass. It's quite unspectacular because obviously for people, it's so exotic listening to a high tenor um, or to a very low voice. It's something so special. So it's very hard for a baritone to actually make an impression because our singing is very close to the speaking voice and everything sounds normal in a way. And you really have to work hard that people say, oh, that's actually quite nice. So what I think is that yes there are beautiful roles in opera for baritone like don giovanni the seducer or eugene onegin or uh billy badenson they are beautiful parts but in the end we are always second or third um in an opera cast it's always about the tenors um but <laughs> where i feel very comfortable and what i do most of the time next to one opera a year and sometimes sing oratorio um and orchestra work is the field of art song, uh, the German particularly called Lieder, where poetry is in the same way important than the music and the singing. And therefore, what I find, it's nice having a very natural approach. So I find it very suitable for baritone that you still have this narrative, this way of talking, communicating to the people, telling the story, um, speaking the, the poem, in a way that you connect in a very natural way with your singing voice, which sounds almost like speaking in a way. And therefore, I think that's where our strength in our range lies. And that's what I love doing. 
Absolutely. Fantastic. I was going to say you do sing a lot of Leader. A lot of your recordings out are of Leader, which we will touch on shortly. But I just wanted to focus a little bit in the meantime on Baroque music, uh, which is my area of expertise as a violinist. You've performed many times with the ensembles that I play with, such as the OAE, Academy of Ancient Music, um, Dunedin Consort, um, all of which are groups that specialise in historically informed or early music. Would you say that uh, as a baritone, you change your vocal style when singing Baroque music, such as using less vibrato, or do you treat your voice as just one instrument, no matter what genre you're singing in? I think both, actually. Mm. Um, I think you have one voice and it speaks in a certain way and you have to use it all the time in the same way. Mm -hmm. So it's also even, you know, you have to change your, you don't have to change your voice, but you have to change your projection and the way how you use your voice. Even it's very different from a small hall to a big hall, uh, how big the orchestra is and so on. So it's not just about the musical style, but also there are different aspects when you perform. And then when you talk about Baroque music, I think, yes, of course, it's you have to somehow then use a specific style uh, to express with your voice uh, in Baroque music. So, yes, there is more notes with a non-vibrato and so on, or different development of a vibrato on a note or, um, yeah, all of that, um, or the use of, of, of colors and languages. But it's still the same voice. It's mm -hmm. just something you... Almost like, you know, you, you have a very bright spotlight and you have different filters of different colors yes. to put in front of it. The, the light itself stays the same and the construction of the light, but you just put different filters on top of it. And that's what I think I see when you when you perform in different genres. Um, I think it's very important in our time. And that's what I find very challenging, but rewarding that you are flexible uh, with your instrument. Unfortunately, I find that our time is more thinking again in boxes. So when you do a lot of contemporary music, you're a contemporary singer. If you mm -hmm. do a lot of Baroque music, you are a early music type. If you do opera, you are only an opera singer. I had the feeling that, you know, after the war and in the second half of the 20th century, there were these singers who had all these flexibilities in their voices and they did opera, oratorio, early Baroque uh, modern romantic music and somehow it was way more of a floating system which i like very much because i find it very inspiring if you actually for example do opera and you work with a stage director you can put a lot of this stuff also in your imagination when you perform a song recital or if you find stylistics for baroque music you can also use it into different styles and and it's just i think someone has to be curious and and open-minded and i think that's what what means being an artist. You're absolutely right. And I actually came across the same or similar sort of conundrum or obstacles as a violinist when I uh, was actually studying historical performance because I had been playing a lot of contemporary music, a lot of classical, romantic. And then when I decided to specialise, I suddenly felt a little bit like, well, is this an entirely new instrument that I have to learn? And it, it sort of pigeonholes you slightly. And I think to be able to view your instrument as just one whole instrument without pigeonholing yourself or putting restraints on it is actually a hugely liberating process because as you said you're drawing on all of these different aspects that you have learnt or um, have experienced in other genres and you're able to apply that uh, to whichever yep. genre you're working in. 
And have you found peace with yourself? <laughs> I have, actually. I think something that's really helped me is, which is not related to singing, but having an instrument that I keep in a similar setup the whole time. So I'm not m moving between shoulder rest and chin rest. And uh, I obviously change bows and strings, but um, in order to keep the instrument kind of feeling holistic for myself and in harmony with my body and physical setup, I like to try and keep it the same with whichever genre I'm playing in. So would you say, uh, what what would you say are the challenges of pe performing Baroque music as opposed to classical or romantic, either in the roles that you play or in the actual music itself? Because you've got ornamentation to think about, which can obviously really make your interpretation very personal and original. Is that something that you really enjoy adding? I do, spending time on that, definitely. Mm. Uh, I think your voice has to be incredibly flexible, um, particularly with the music of Bach, for example. It's quite hard. You have to think very instrumental um, and harmonically. Uh, also, for example, his uh, recitatives can be chromatically quite strange. So you really have to always lock into, into a chord or into a harmonic to really make it work for yourself, but also for an audience. So that's uh, this is something I find quite challenging. Later music, you very often can actually just cover things up and go harmonically or pitch-wise through things. In Baroque music, it's 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 very hard. You have you have to really bang in the center, have the pitch for every every note, um, and also finding a good mixture. It really depends on the Baroque music, but very often coming back to Bach again. It seems to be a very constructed, mathematically beautifully constructed music, which just makes sense on a very intellectual level. Mm -hmm. But behind this construction, there's this huge ocean of emotions and you have to work on this construction first, but also never lose the sight of what stands behind and actually connect then also on an emotional level. And I find that quite challenging. Um, it's not like music, at least for me, most of his music, I mean, there are some certain arias uh, in his Matthew Passion and so on, where, which go straight to your heart. But there's a lot of music which actually you have to work your way through the emotion, uh, through to come to the emotions. And that's, I find, quite challenging. You're right. I mean, a lot of Bach is a bit of a jigsaw puzzle. It's completely amazing to play and perform and to work on. But it's, you know, you've really got to get down to the intellectual side of it and kind of understand the workings of the music before you can work on the emotional side of things, I think, in contrast to maybe romantic music, which really kind of instantly tugs at the heartstrings and almost the the emotions and the feeling of that takes over. Whereas with Bach, as you say, you've, you've got to work a little bit harder for that. Um, one of your recordings, which I love, um, is Bach's, I'm going to say this wrong, but Krön und Price from his cantata BWV 214, which you recorded with Concerto Cologne in 2018. So oh, that was for our... very long time ago. <laughs> yeah, very long time ago. So for our listeners, Bach's cantata Resound Ye Drums, Ring Out Ye Trumpets, BWV 214, is a secular cantata composed in 1733 for the birthday of Maria Josepha, Queen of Poland. The work is made up of nine movements and features four vocal soloists, each of whom represent a Roman and Greek god and goddesses of war and peace. You might be working, finding this out for the first time. <laughs> the aria. You're very good. Amazingly prepared. I'm very <laughs> impressed. <laughs> the aria that you sing uh, or that's sung by your character, Farmer, is 
a Roman goddess of fame and rumour, and it's really jubilant and triumphant. And the thing that really drew me into this aria or to this cantata actually is the use of this obbligato trumpet line, which is very prevalent throughout your aria. And for listeners who, who are unaware, an obbligato instrumental part kind of weaves in and out of the vocal part um, imitating motifs and you really bounce off each other being two sort of uh, dominant uh, lines each both the instrumental part and the vocal part are just as important as each other how do you approach that as a singer is that something that um, makes you draw on different techniques working with an instrumentalist who is almost imitating the vocal line I find quite beautiful in this area mm. for example is that Actually, the trumpet starts and I listen to it. So you find inspiration first, he, him playing. And what I find very, very beautiful being a singer, I mentioned it before a little bit, is the openness around you. So you find inspiration in your performing in a beautiful painting. You find inspiration in a beautiful uh, nature. You find it in a ballet or whatever. You find it in an evening with friends where you have just an amazing feeling, where you really feel feel wonderfully at ease. You find it in a character or a person walking uh, on the street and so on. And you just have to, I find that your pores of your skin have to be open and you have to be like a sponge and take everything in and then hopefully bring it out in a performance. And that's beautiful if you have uh, straight before you start singing a trumpet uh, playing and you find your inspiration, but it can also then bounce back. It's like a ping pong. Then you mm. start and then the the, the trumpet um uh, follows. So that's what I find also extraordinary with this music. Um, but also I find that every day could be completely different. So we experience, of course, during the day, also things. We have a phone call. We now have an interview before a concert. Uh, we, uh, you know, get an email which upsets us or we love the lunch or whatever. These are all things which actually prepare us for a performance and change a performance every every day in a way. And I tried for years to keep that out and mm -hmm. block that out and just do the music and try to, as I prepared and where I think this should be like this and that. But actually, uh, for a few years now, I embrace it as well, that all of these influences are part of me and actually shape my performance and my emotional connection to the piece. And so maybe even the trumpet player without knowing plays uh, and is happy because I had a good lunch. <laughs> I love it. I completely agree. And I actually feel the same as you. It's very easy to approach performing in, in two different ways. You can either block everything out, be totally focused. And I mean, I think as performers, whenever we walk on stage, we try to leave uh, things that have upset us during the day or anything off the stage. But more often than not, they actually result in almost a better performance or a more emotive performance because you're drawing on all these emotions that might have affected you, whether that's your wonderful lunch or whether that's a horrible phone call you've had with somebody. Um, and that's what makes it every performance individual and different, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's what I've learned from one of the greatest leaders, singer called Dietrich Fischer-Diskau, with whom I worked for a few years. Mm. And what I really learned from him, apart from many, many details, was that for 40 years, he created every time. It was not a delivery of music. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's a big danger for us that we walk on stage and do it as always, um, that we really dig deeper, that we found and find a new approach. And it's also more interesting for an audience, which hopefully comes more than once into a concert. So um, I think it's a, every, everyone benefits from, from this approach. <laughs> 
Absolutely. And it allows us as performers just to be even more spontaneous. And as you say, make every performance individual, which of course is incredibly important for the audience as well. So this is an extract of Benjamin performing Krön und Preis from Bach's Cantata BWV 214. to move on to the subject of leader which is as you've already explained a real staple in your performing diet as a baritone what is it about the genre specifically which is so glorious to explore as a baritone you've already mentioned the use of text and how that is uh, a huge uh, asset there are many things i love leader and i think it's the most glorious and most wonderful art form in the world um First of all, it's music which has been written for a small room, for a salon. It has been written for friends. It has been written for the people. It hasn't been written for kings or uh, counts or whatever. It has been written for every one of us. And it is a wonderful marriage of the most beautiful poetry with gorgeous music. And so we have an, a text by a, by a writer, which, as I said before, it's hopefully a very, very beautiful poem. And then a composer was inspired by that and puts his personal interpretation into this text. And then we come as a third mm. element and we find an interpretation to this piece together. But sometimes it can happen that you sometimes feel that the music and the text are actually having different levels of emotions or, or interpretation. So you can either follow the text or you can follow the music. Um, and sometimes you don't follow any of that. And I find that so interesting in working uh, on, on this art form and just connecting with the people. And you don't have costume, you don't have uh, lights. So you see actually the audience. It's also about direct communication with the audience. Most of the time it's in smaller halls and they're very close. And it is kind of frightening in the beginning 
you don't have any instruments around you or places where you can hide. Um, you have just a black, normally black piano behind you. And it's very frightening. You feel like naked. Um, but it's also super rewarding, rewarding uh, work to do. And, and that's what I love so much, that there is this kind of very emotional connection to the music. Of course, the words sometimes are outdated and the vocabulary we don't use anymore. But when you dig deep, dig deeper these songs are all about all cover all the emotions uh, we still carry in us despite technology and all kind of things which which are new to us but in the end when you break it down to uh, love to loss of love to longing for death to losing someone these are all very very essential essential um, emotions and uh, i think that's also the reason why people of our time listen to pop songs which actually are not so far away from 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 our leader world you're absolutely right i hadn't thought about that at all but as you say all the same we're still human beings aren't we and even though technology is advanced we're all still experiencing the same things in life love loss of love happiness joy sorrow uh, all those emotions there as human beings are, are we're we're all still experiencing those so you've recorded many CDs over the last few years some of which uh, we've already touched on but the one that's obviously at the forefront of my mind and everyone else's mind is your latest disc, Vinterizer, which you recorded with James Balio and is due to be released, well, today, actually. So exactly. huge congratulations. Thank you very much. Very exciting. Mm, spoiler alert for listeners, um, Benjamin CD will actually already be out by the time you listen to this podcast. But I urge you to all have a listen because it's absolutely stunning. Thank you. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Vinterizer, you'll be able to explain this better than me, Ben, but it's a song cycle for voice and piano by Franz Schubert, published in 1828 using 24 poems by Wilhelm Müller. And it's the second of Schubert's two song cycles on his poems, I think, the earlier being Die Schöne Müllerin, which was published in 1823. So the poems in Vinterizer tell the listener of a winter's journey and how the singer or the storyteller wanders as this lost soul uh, through harsh terrains with a lot of conflicting emotions. Perhaps you can tell our listeners how this project came about and indeed why Vinterizer as a song cycle holds such a dominant spot in the baritone repertoire. I think Winterreise is one of the greatest compositions ever made by anyone in, in the world. Um, it's 72 minutes long. It's a big task to learn it and to, to learn all the, the, the words of copy. And I think it is rewarding because, first of all, it's gorgeous music and, and incredible poetry, again, with very, very strong emotions, often very, very dark emotions. Um, but what I find rewarding, it is a real journey. and. In every second, you have to make decisions. So there is a phrase or a word or a musical harmonic change. And you have to build an opinion on that. You can't just uh, leave it bland, bland. And so therefore, you ask a question. There are also in the poetry, there are a lot of little hints. In the beginning, he talks about the beloved one, which he leaves in the beginning. And he just mentions with one word, the mother, and, and the situation, you have no idea about the background. It's always just little, little points and which gives you nothing really concrete. And you have to build around your own imagination and your own opinion why he leaves this place and what 
is the situation, the human relationship with all these people. And then when he starts his journey, you have hundreds, thousands of these moments and you have to make a decision and you, it's like really a crossing. You, you come to a crossing and you have to decide which path are you taking. And you ask a question and you don't get an answer, but you get 10 or 15 more questions about. And that's so rewarding in this piece that you actually never get tired of walking this direction. Once you sing it and it's an angry chap. Once you sing it, it's a very fragile chap. The other one, he looks for light. He's, it's a lighter one. So it gives so, so many different ways of interpretation. And I think that's also why it has been recorded so often, why it has been performed so often. And that's why people also come to listen so often. And uh, he's a chap who, it's a winter journey. Yes, he walks through snow and, and experiences nature and the bareness of nature and the, the issue of cold, but also, of course, an emotional cold. But he's someone, and there are two or three references in the song cycle as well, that everyone around him actually sleeps and they sleep through, throughout their entire life. They're not asking questions. They just live their lives. They're not reflecting. They're not, you know, getting out of their comfort zone. And he's the only one who is brave, goes out into the world, asks questions, asks uncomfortable questions, looks into the deepest, darkest corners of his inner life. And he's a brave one. And that's that's a wonderful wonderful thing to sing of, but also to experience as a singer, as a musician, as a pianist, but also as a member of an audience. It sounds just the way that you describe it, like such a journey in itself, not only learning it, but but performing it as well. And this project is not just a CD, um, but also a BBC filmed version too, which you recorded on the uh, Julia Pass in Switzerland uh, with John Brigcott. Um, what an incredible experience. Uh, why? How did this come about? Why in this location? A few years ago, I gave a masterclass in Basel in Switzerland and one of my students had some pictures on his social media um, channel from this tower and I saw it and I thought that's completely surreal. So a guy, a festival director, built a tower, a red tower, made out of wood on 2,300 meters on top of this pass in the Swiss Alps um, as a theater. And it's kind of timeless architecture. And what's the interesting thing is he got only a planning permission for five years. So he built it a few years ago and he was supposed to uh, demolish it last year, but due the pandemic, he got one or two more years to go. So it's also something which will disappear. And I thought that's the most wonderful place to perform this piece. I couldn't believe that, actually, when I was reading about the tower, that it's going to be dismantled yeah. in 2023. And it looks, when you look at it, like a an ancient yeah. structure that's been there for ages, not a modern, yeah. uh, you know, construction that's just been built. Well, you can buy it for $3 million and uh, bring it to ever. So maybe one of your listeners uh, is interested to, to have a, a big theatre tower in his garden. <laughs> Well, I was thinking myself, you know, I might, you know, just add that to the list. Perfect. <laughs> um, so I went there and saw everything and I was really inspired because this is a place, there's nothing around and you sit in this tower in silence and it's the most amazing place to get inspiration and you feel how your synapses in the brain are going wild and really creates this creativity in your brain. Um, and I told John Britt who is one of the uh, finest English musical or music uh, documentary film makers, 
And he loved the idea, so he um, convinced the BBC in the end to commission this uh, beautiful piece of music uh, in this in the setup. Um, so we will have the seventy-two minutes of music, and then also eighteen minutes of documentary, where I talk, for example, to a great singer called Brigitte Fassbender, who was one of the first female singers who recorded this song cycle. But also talking to young musicians, singers, and pianists who are about to learn this cycle or just learn this cycle and also what the relevance of this music is in the 21st century and how they connect on an intellectual, emotional level with this music. So uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to be part of this uh, great, um, great uh, project and also that the German song world and and uh, get such such an exposure on, on the BBC. It's I know for the 21st century is is quite quite extraordinary. Fantastic! I absolutely cannot wait to watch that. So for the non-singers out there, the preparation that goes into learning a song cycle or indeed any large piece of repertoire such as Winterizer uh, must be maybe like an actor living and breathing their character um, or role proceeding a play or a film or even a performance. How do you go about preparing for such a mammoth undertaking in Winterizer? I mean, it's 24 movements. There's a lot to uh, a lot of emotions to, to be digesting. And it is very, very much. Um, but if I now when I now tell you this story, probably you're disappointed. So uh, <laughs> I learned the Winterreise uh, exactly in a way everyone would tell you you shouldn't learn it. Um, it was maybe 13, 14 years ago, and I was supposed to do a Winterreise for the first time in a small place in Germany. I think it was on a Friday night. Um, and uh, the week before on a Sunday, I had a concert in Germany, and afterwards I had to drive me with my father through the entire uh, country, going back uh, home to Bavaria. And on this entire car ride, I learned one or two songs, uh, and uh, it was an entire day. And we arrived at home, and then you know, you realized there's still 22 songs to go, and there were only four days left. So I woke up every morning at six o'clock, started learning it. I sit down on the desk, starting to learn it at seven in the morning, and really till midnight was sitting there without any breaks apart from a lunch break. Um, so it was the most intense time, but on the other hand, it was extraordinary that you dig into this music and there's nothing else around and you just spend like a madman only with the score and I learned these songs in writing in over and over on the paper so I get a sense of the structure of a poem because very often in music you you know from one music line to the other one you lose actually does it have five verses is it four lines per per strophe or whatever. So you get a sense. And for me, it's learning great with writing because for me, it's visual, but also tactile. And so I learn it uh, quicker on different levels. So you're really learning the, po the poetry first before even yes. the music, really? Yes, yes. absolutely. Um, and by the end of the week, I walked on stage and I, I did it off copy. Um, and since then, I've performed it around, I don't know, 80, 90 times. Uh, but it's a piece you will never you will never understand, nor you will ever think you you know it too well. So that's exciting. That's absolutely incredible. What a story! But yes, an absolute sort of nightmare first time to actually learn a work of this magnitude. But it sounds like the way that you learnt it has really stuck. I mean, we've all had to learn music where we had to cram, you know, the days before. But then often it means you haven't really learnt it properly and in a couple of years, it hasn't stuck under the fingers or in the voice, but it sounds like you really stripped it back to its bare minimum and and learnt it like that. 
that's also why I thought, you know, to wait with the recording of that, although it is the Mount Everest of, of every song recital is. Um, so I thought I wait for a few years till I really think I, I, uh, I've done it, uh, enough. And, uh, I'm right now at the point of my career as well, where I think I'm entering a new stage and I thought it's the right time now to, to record it. Well, I can't wait for all of the listeners to hear your recording and see the documentary because it sounds absolutely incredible. The thing that, for me, which prevails throughout this work, I didn't really know Vinterizer particularly well before this year, um, is this juxtaposition of lightness and darkness, happiness, heartache, hope, despair, which Schubert captures so brilliantly throughout his word painting, use of harmony, keys, um, accompaniment motifs, um, all of that. And of course, text, which is, of course, completely dominant throughout. Have you got any favourite movements? I mean, you're probably going to say the whole thing as a whole, but no. are there any points that you come to in your journey of performance or learning where you think, ah, oh, this feels like home, or, oh, this is turning a corner, we're going into the next passage yeah. of journey? There are a few bits, and there's mm. some always favourite hits and some others which change. Um, one I always love from the very beginning till today is song 21 called Das Wirtshaus, the Inn, because it is in major suddenly. But what's the most extraordinary thing of Schubert is he is a master of changing minor to major and the other way back. But often his major sounds more, or, yeah, sounds more sad than actually the, the minor. And he just creates this beautiful atmosphere in this song in major, which is the most, most beautiful sound and chords and so on. But on the other hand, you also feel so, so sorry for the, for the guy. Um, and it's about that it's called an inn, but it's about that he actually enters a cemetery and he tries to die or be part lying down and, and, you know, find a place to rest there. But all the, all the graves are already occupied and he has to move on. So there, there is this element also, even uh, out of the Bible, you know, in the beginning, Mary and Joseph went uh, to Bethlehem and they didn't find an inn. So there's also this kind of reverence maybe so they had to move on as well and it's just beautiful beautiful music and very very moving and um that's that's one of my favorite songs and then there's another one about a crow um about the bird flying on top of him um which is a very spooky song so i like that as well absolutely i mean those are two of the movements actually i picked out to talk about with you the inn for me when i was reading the text of it it seems like he's going into as you say into an inn into a guest house on his journey and then suddenly you realize it's this graveyard but the writing is so sort of peaceful and calm um i think also the sort of homophonic accompaniment from the piano is, is almost sort of church-like and yeah. kind of welcoming you into yeah. this graveyard but I was looking at the text and, and it's saying, you know, my journey's brought me to a graveyard. I thought I'm going to rest here for the night. And then uh, are all the rooms in this house taken then? He says, I'm weary to the point of collapsed. I'm, I'm wounded, but he has to move on. Yeah. And it's sort of an amazing point in the journey where he thought he was going to finish his journey, yeah. but, but it's been made that he doesn't. And he could have also written this piece in a very haunting, dark, um, yeah, spooky way entering a, a graveyard but he just chose it completely differently and i think that makes it this song even more moving even more special 
uh, yeah, it's almost like an aureole around the entire entire piece. So for the listeners here, this is an extract of the movement from Der Winterreiser, The Inn. You just mentioned a movement called the crow, which actually also really stuck out to me. As soon as I heard it, I thought, oh my goodness, you create a completely different sound world. Um, This mood of this mocking, eerie crow that's just kind of over your shoulder uh, the whole time. Um, And the text of, of the verse says, a crow has come with me from the town and to this day has been flying ceaselessly around my head. And why do you not leave me? And you do something remarkable with your vocal technique uh, in the recording. Uh, The listeners will be able to hear this as soon as they hear the track. But how did you create that to make this sort of mocking sound? It's my experience in Baroque music. (laughs) It's a lot of of non-vibrato. I try to sing very linear, very pale. Um, I think he enters a stage here in the cycle where he goes, gets really lost and goes a bit cuckoo. Um, so mm. he he has been on this journey most of the time on his own. There were some barking dogs um, and so on. But in the end, suddenly he sees this, this bird. And it's a very strange relationship because on one hand, he asks the bird to follow him till his grave, um, to his grave. But so he wants to have this company in a way, but he's also very afraid of it. So it's a very curious double standard standard song and that's what i tried to also uh, find in 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 this sound production um and as i said he goes a little bit mental here 
Um, so you don't know really where this journey ends. Uh, mm. The extraordinary thing is with you sing 24 songs. And in the beginning, yes, he talks about the people he's leaving, but they are not present in this song anymore. So you have 23 songs of the 24 songs where there's no human with him. He's always on his own. And in the end, the 24th song, which is also quite one of the most extraordinary songs, uh, called Eliamon, the hurdy-gurdy man, um, where he meets for the first time a human. Um, and we don't know really who this is, this human. Um, it's an old man who plays this instrument and he seems to be also a bit weird. Maybe it's him seeing himself in a few years time or um, we don't know anything where this guy comes from and where those two are going to. So, but that's what also extraordinary for me is in this cycle that it ends actually in companionship after being always on the own and uh, on your own and on the way. And that mm. I find quite extraordinary in this music. I did think that when I listened to the hurdy-gurdy movement, I mean, the accompaniment is, is so sort of haunting and really draws you into that world. It's very evocative. Um, but as you say, who, who is this hurdy-gurdy man? Is it maybe the angel of death welcoming, welcoming him after a long journey to say you can finally rest? Is it somebody to bring him happiness to lead him onto a happier journey is it who is it and it's so wonderful that the, as the listener and also as the singer the narrator you're left with this uh, idea that's sort of open Absolutely. to uh, to and, interpretation and in the end you have this end ending point which is not an ending point because the journey carries on the thing is also he can't die uh, in the other schubert song cycle die schöne müllerin which he wrote before the boy is desperately in love uh, with this girl and he doesn't find another way in the end of the song cycle than uh, committing suicide. In this cycle, he wants to die, but he can't die. He has to carry on. He's even too weak or too strong, however you want to call it, to die. And this hurdy-gurdy man opens a new chapter and you don't know where it's going and who this uh, person is or, or this creature or whatever that is. So, And that's wonderful. You have this kind of end song point and from there you can actually spin back and make decisions how you actually in the end end up with this man and how this man's personality changes actually also the other songs beforehand meaning the entire path you walk along and that's why I find uh, this song cycle is so rewarding and we have a lot of very opinionated people in our song world, uh, in our audience. We have a wonderful audience, but these people listen to these uh, songs very often for many, many years. So they have very strong mm. opinions about things. But exactly in this song cycle, I find that there are thousands of ways to find an interpretation and to their right. Uh, all these ways are right, I find, and, and valid. So, And that's what, what I find so beautiful in this music, that every path is is a is a right path to to walk along another movement that really uh jumped out at me that i loved was uh dream of spring uh it's just so charming and it's but it but again it's filled with this juxtaposition which you can hear in both the text and the musical writing of joy and sorrow so you've got this lovely lilting major accompaniment which is very leader-esque um and then a very fraught middle section also of him waking up and being terrified. And then it's sort of back into this beautiful, uh, you can almost hear the bird singing and it is it is so, so charming. Um, this aria in particular, how do you visualize the traveler on his journey here? 
Well, this song is really about um, the person. It's a dream. So he lies down and has his most beautiful dreams of happiness, of good old times, of being with the beloved ones, of, you know, being at ease. And then he wakes up within the night and and sees how the how reality kicks in and, and it's a complete, complete different story. And what this song is, as you say, it's it's about these huge changes within a second. So it's yeah. very, very brutally going into different directions within a second. So that's also a challenge in performing that you have to switch your emotions, your approach, your uh, dynamical ranges of singing and so on. Um, but but the wonderful thing is there are different ways of doing that. It's you see colors when you sing. You you think of beautiful moments in in your life back. You think of terrible moments in your in your life. You think of paintings. You think of of friends who go through a certain difficulty or beautiful time. So that I find find interesting to connect these personal experiences with these different music and then be very clear and precise in your changes. Mm. So this is Dream of Spring. Ich träumte von bunten Blumen, so wie sie wohl blühen im Mai. Ich träumte von grünen Wiesen, von lustigem Vogelgeschrei. Von lustigem Vogelgeschrei. Und als die Hähne krähten, da ward mein Auge wach. Da war es kalt und finster, es schrien die Raben vom Dach. Da war es kalt und finster, es schrien die Raben vom Dach. The last movement I'd love to touch on, which also sprung out at me, is the Frozen movement, which is completely different to Dream of Spring. Um, it's not elegant or charming. It's sort of full of turmoil and uh, it's very unsettling, the piano accompaniment. It really sort of comes into its own then. Uh, very soloistic piano writing as well. Um, and the thing that uh, struck me about this was actually the use of text and diction Maybe this is something that's prevalent through the whole song cycle, but I really, I really found in this movement um, almost you imitating the articulation in the piano very much with the text that you're using and the way that you're articulating. Yes, probably. I don't know. Sometimes you do things you, of course, you have to prepare a song cycle and you have to work in detail, but at the end you walk on stage and you are, as I said before, you you also answer to the pianist as well. So the wonderful thing in, in, in song, mm. in the song world is you have a pianist whom you know, hopefully in a way. And that's also something um, when people ask me, what is, uh, what are the things a, a good song accompanist or pianist has to bring with? Yes, the person has to be a fantastic pianist, a great musician, has to understand breathing of a singer, has to understand the text and how consonants work in the music and so on. But in the end, it's about that you build a relationship with your pianist, a relationship of trust, that you actually 
have dinner with him, that you travel with him on an airplane, that you have a drink with him, that you have walks with him, that you talk about life, about friends, about every aspect of life and building this relationship. Um, because when you stand on stage, he is the one who can kill you or can make you shine. He's actually in power, not you. And you have to be always nice and kind to your pianists. Um, so they are treating you nicely. But uh, it is like also then like a ping pong play. There's something coming from his way uh, in terms of different tempo, maybe sometimes faster, maybe slower, maybe sometimes more aggressive, more, uh, you know, staccato being even more pointing out and so on. And you react on that. And sometimes you... No, I was going to say in the song cycle, actually, the pianist starts every movement. Absolutely. So actually, it's up to him or her, really, what mood they want to create. Um, and as you say, that might be something that you've talked about during the day, some experience you've had that will just change everything yeah. completely in the performance. So it might be in this song and on the album, it, it is this way. But sometimes, as I said, it comes also from the pianist. And sometimes something comes when you have a very good relationship with the pianist. Sometimes uh, he has a suggestion and you just say, no, I'm not following. And the other way around. <laughs> and actually, that can, be also, that can be also quite interesting for the audience, that there's actually this tension between singer and pianist where you've maybe not not really uh, cautiously, but you, you somehow feel there's something twisted and that can also have incredibly uh, attractivity in, in a performance. Mm, absolutely. This is the movement from Winterizer Frozen. Benjamin talking more about his Winterizer project over on BBC's Start of the Week and I shall put a link of this in the podcast information for this episode. You must have done so many incredible concerts over the last few years. Well, maybe not over actually the last few years in the pandemic, but generally within your career. And I know for me, the success of a concert is dependent on so many factors such as tiredness levels, location, audience, feeling well the weather, um, but which the few that have jumped out at you for being unique in some way? Of course, when you get the opportunity to perform with great orchestras with in beautiful opera houses, uh, very, very renowned um, promoters. Yes, that's what also looks beautiful in a in a biography. And that's also why you might get other work. But very often I find very rewarding to perform in places where there's no pressure, where you're in a small place, where there's a lovely audience, very appreciative, where 
people are open-minded, that they find incredibly rewarding when you feel of an audience that they actually are willing to go with you on a journey and are open whatever you do and uh, don't judge before they even go into a concert hall. It's even, you know, with us sometimes, musicians, sometimes we go into performance with our musician hat and judge immediately things out of uh, a mind of a musician and sometimes we are more open-minded and sometimes we go to concerts in a good mood and we like it and sometimes we even, without probably knowing, we go into concert and we won't like it even before the first note will be played. So um, I loved going to India, for example. I performed the other song cycle, the Schöne Müllerin, there in Chennai, in front of uh, people who have never listened to Western classical music before. So there was this freshness and openness. Um, and I loved that very much. Um, it's it's really difficult to say. I loved the concerts in New York, uh, where I did all three Schubert cycles in, uh, in four days five days um so yeah there are moments where you and very often when you just don't expect it and you only need you only need one member in the audience where you build an amazing connection with and you just start a dialogue and when that happens actually that's the most rewarding moment absolutely and sometimes i find as a performer the most unexpected concerts that you think are not going to go well are the most delightful and full of the most wonderful energy, specifically also smaller concerts where you think, oh, there's not a big audience or even a salon concert where you're not even maybe thinking that you're going to have a connection with the audience. And more often than not, these ones that you're not expecting to be beautiful really are. Absolutely. So I suppose that keeps it keeps it fresh for us all. And also it's. It should also remind us that actually we should not judge beforehand venue, people, uh, situation, location, whatever, um, but that we should be open and be surprised sometimes in life that things like that can't be planned, really. We've all done these dreaded fly-in, fly-out concerts uh, many more times than we would have liked. And obviously vocal health for you is very important uh, to be on your game as a performer. How do you look after yourself when you're on the road for so long? Have you got any tips or tricks or techniques that, uh, or even routines that you follow when you're on the road? I think that's a big change uh, which happened over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, when I think of the big singers, which are always the ones we are always compared to, they had more time in their lives. They also were not victims of social media and phones and so on, but also in terms of traveling, way time back, they took a, a, a ship or a boat to, to America. Um, we now fly over, sing the next day. Uh, promoters were paying an entire week uh, in a hotel before performing. So we go only there for one or two days and come back. Um, that's a big challenge, yes. Uh, I for a while tried really to find a rhythm and also tried to look after myself maybe sometimes too carefully, um, which I think can also mess up your brain and, and, and uh, it's, it's a danger, dangerous, dangerous thing. So right now I'm very happy with just taking it easy, um, but also having a good time, um, mm. sometimes having a nice glass of wine, having a nice food, uh, spending time with people, um, going to a museum, seeing all of that, just having a nice life and not being a victim of your performance. Um, because I think in the end, it limits you as a human being as well, not just as an artist. And uh, 
And what about, you know, you perform for 20 years and you after 20 years, I had one example of a great, great singer sitting in front of me with whatever, 80 plus and crying all, all the time because he said, there's nothing left from my life. And because he dedicated his entire life to performing and he just let 40 years go by of his life. And that's the wonderful thing of performing. It's in the air, it's gone. You can't recreate it. No one normally apart from people now recording concerts, but it's not recorded, it's gone. People can only think back, but they can't even create the same emotional feeling or the same uh, feeling generally. So that's a wonderful thing in our profession, but it's also most dangerous that you dedicate everything to moments which are gone. Um, so therefore, I think we all have to live our life as well. You're absolutely right. That's a fantastic, fantastic approach. And I feel very similarly as well, just to seize opportunities and explore new cities and just fill yourself up culturally and personally and through all so we should have a glass of wine together <laughs> we should definitely have a glass of wine together absolutely maybe not tonight you've got a concert but uh maybe after the concert <laughs> anyway i'd love to finish today's podcast with an extract of benjamin's beautiful recording of greeks and desvaterland from his 2017 cd with james balio Heimat. recordings which we have discussed today can be found on the Spotify playlist for today's episode of The Classical Corner. I would also like to express my huge gratitude to Sony and Alpha Classics who have very kindly let us indulge ourselves with their recordings today. So thank you. Thank you so much, Davina. Well, Benjamin, it's been an utter joy and delight to have you in The Classical Corner today. What a pleasure to share so many musical memories and adventures with you and to hear you sing so beautifully too. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me and uh, I wish you all the best and that we all stay healthy and well. And uh, I'm looking forward to our glass of wine. Me too, very much. <laughs> thank you all so much for joining me for another episode of The Classical Corner. I hope you'll tune in next time when we shall continue to explore some more glorious music together. In the meantime, I wish you all a wonderful week. Goodbye. <laughs>